0: and I wanted to go across the Harbour Bridge. It was plastered all over the papers and everything. You're not going to come over this Harbour Bridge. And I went up there to the post office, I wrote to the Harbour Bridge, Chairman of the Harbour Bridge, my telegram, I said, Le- the, the, uh, let us come on, on our Harbour Bridge. I didn't say on your... Our Harbour Bridge, its most historical march, and I soon got a reply: "Come, come on, Finna, come across. The marchers can come over the bridge." Oh, they clapped with joy and said, "You know, oh, you good Finna, you, oh, and all that." Thanked me. They couldn't thank me enough. I, shh, I said. Listen to me. I didn't do it. Do you know who did it? No. I said, you people. You suffered yourself all the way from the Harpur. You're on your feet. You try to march, even you're sore. I said, all those pains is rewarded.
1: Not one more acre. That was the catch cry of the 1975 Land March led by Te Raraua Kuia, Whenakupa. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Land March that began in Te Hāpua and ended on the steps of Parliament on the 13th of October. The people delivered a memorial of rights signed along the way by rangatira of the marae the group stayed at. What started with 40-50 to 50 people swelled to 4,000 people by the time it got to Wellington. As part of the commemorations, a panel discussion was hosted at the National Library. The panellists were there 40 years ago, and each had a role to play. Cyril Chapman held the po Whenua, Vivian Hutchinson suggested the land march to Cooper, and David Williams was part of Kia or the Citizens' Association for Racial Equality. Tonight we dedicate the show to those who took part in the march. You'll hear archival recordings from 1975 and 1976, and excerpts of this week's panel discussion.
2: Cyril Chapman, uh, who's from the Kohatsu Takahapu in Mapuhi in the north, he's the manager of Tautoko FM in Mangamuka. But in 1975, when he was 20 years old, he carried the kau, carved kauwenua for much of the land march, and also during the 2004 foreshore and seabed hikoi. And beside um, Cyril is Vivian Hutchinson, a community activist and social entrepreneur from Taranaki. In 1975, he was working as a journalist in Auckland as a 19 year old, where he met this queer, Fina Cooper, and suggested the idea of a land march to her. Based on, as you'll see when you go up to the exhibition, of his time growing up at, uh, in Taranaki, spending time at Parihaka beside that redoubtable queer, Auntie Marge Ro Cooper there as well. So, but I want to acknowledge that Vivian has played a very important role in recording the memory of the march, and he donated his collection of papers and media coverage relating to Iteropo o Te Matsukete to the Turnbull Library, which I was able to use to research the um, exhibition that you can see upstairs. Now, third Kaikoruro, David Williams, holds a personal chair as Professor of Law at the University of Auckland. He's also worked as an independent researcher and barrister, with a particular interest in treaty research and scholarship. But as he also says on his website, he has a background as an activist in the CARE uh, group, which was the Citizens Association for Racial Equality. And as it said in the annual report he sent to me from 1975, it was a pressure group concerned about race relations and racism. It included all sorts of people in its membership, like um, T. Haraweta, H. Clark. These people have gone on to do Joris People have gone on to do all sorts of interesting things. As Secretary of Care, he became involved with the land march and also events which followed, including the Bastion Point Takaparawau occupation in the 1970s. So, please join me in welcoming our panel.
3: Kia
1: To get a sense of why the march was held in the first place, Dr Ranganui Walker, from an excerpt of Te Puna Wai Kōrero, 18th of September 1975,
4: said, They are dramatising the need to hold on to what remains the last remnants of their Māori-owned land. The Māoris are the indigenous people of New Zealand, the first people to come here, the original owners of the land. They once owned the whole country and now out of the 66 million acres that they once owned, they only own three million. And this is the whole purpose of the march, is it's an attempt to get the government to look at the statutes that are nibbling away at those last remnants of land.
1: So, what prompted Finna Cooper, who was nearly 80 years old at the time, to march from Tehapua to Wellington? Well, it took six months of planning, 30 days to complete, and a few seemingly tricky logistics along the way. Well, the catch cry was, not one more acre of Māori land. Haria Williams presented this episode of Te Punawai Kōrero in 1975, about five days into the march.
5: In Māori tenua, the only right to land was the right to use it, acquired by inheritance from either parent and validated by residents. However, abrasive contacts over land led inexorably to conflict. After the fighting of the 1860s, legislation was passed to speed up the assimilation of the Māori people into a European social structure. Henry Sewell, the Minister of Justice in 1870, said the object of the Native Lands Act was twofold. To bring the great bulk of lands which belonged to the Māoris within the reach of colonization. The other great object was the detribalization of the Māoris. It is hoped by the individualization of titles to the land, giving them the same individual ownership as we ourselves possessed, they would lose their communistic character and that their social status would become assimilated with our own. In retaliation for Māori stubbornness, over three million acres of land from friendly as well as hostile Māori was confiscated. Apart from an abiding resentment of the confiscations, the conflict had a long-standing effect on the formation of movements to halt the further loss of Māori land, some of these being tikotahitanga, Te Kingitanga, the Young Māori Party, and recently Te Ropu o Te Matakite, all striving to unite the Māori people under a single lobby. What is the march for? Dr. Ranginui Walker with 1ZB's Dave Lenhan.
4: Much of the land was alienated in the past by sale. The Maoris themselves kept selling the land under Pākehā pressure. And they've decided enough's enough. We wish to hold uh, this tribal territory uh, as an estate uh, for the generations to come whereby they can express their own cultural uh, use of the land. Now, some people have said uh, it's an anomaly that we've got a pro-Mauri government in power, a Labour government. We've got the first uh, Maori minister of uh, Maori affairs in Matarata since the days of uh, Sir na Ngata, and uh, it's an anomaly that we have Maoris becoming militant and marching in this fashion on Wellington. Now, as I understand it, Uh, the marchers, the organisers are not um, protesting against the actions of Matt Rutter. In fact, they view their actions as supporting the battle that Matt Rutter is conducting on their behalf in Parliament. It is against government per se, because over the years, various statutes have been introduced by government which have continued to nibble away at those last remnants of Maori land. Uh, And uh, some of these are the Uh, Town and Country Planning Act, uh, whereby these coastal reserves have been designated uh, and they're under threat of being taken over by the government. Now the Town and Country Planning Act was not the responsibility of the Labour government. That was brought in under a national government. But it so happens that statute is now being enacted with the Labour government in power. So uh, Labour government happens to be collecting the flag. But it's aimed that this march is aimed at all governments who have introduced these statutes that are inimical to these last remnants of Maori land. Uh, another statute is the uh, Rating act and the Counties Amendment act. now under this these two acts, uh, it is now possible for uh, county councils to bring charging orders against uh, uh, land land has fallen to arrears of rates they can Uh, sell up the land and recover their rates arrears. Now Mr. Rutter uh, has uh, introduced legislation to slow this down uh, and he's done a good job there, but nonetheless the statutes are still there and the purpose of the marches uh, is to go down and present a memorial to Parliament, uh, to the Prime Minister, uh, stating their claim as the Aboriginal inhabitants, why it is there should be special legislation introduced into this country recognizing Uh, multiple tribal title to land. You see, this is the problem, is that since the colonization of this country by our Pākehā forebears, and I say our because they belong to both sides, um, they introduced an alien cultural frame of reference whereby this concept of individual ownership of land was introduced, that an individual could own a piece of land in perpetuity. Now, even English philosophers have questioned this notion, the temerity of man to think that he can own land forever and ever. It's ridiculous, because we're here to inhabit this planet for three score and ten, and then we pass on, the land remains. And that it's epitomised in a Maori uh, aphorism, man perishes, but the land remains. And so these are some of the points uh, behind this march to Parliament. It's against government as such for these inimical statutes because not only are they affecting Maori land, but they're also affecting Pākehā land. Uh, The the Albany Orchardists are a case in point. The Public Works Act hits everybody, Maoris and Pākehās. Similarly, the Petroleum Act threatens some of the clauses of the Treaty of Waitangi. So these are the the acts that they're going to talk about uh, when they get down to Parliament.
5: Sana Murray
6: from Tehapua in the far north. No offense to the European, but they arrived here on fees with the purchase of Maori land. The Wakefield brothers did this. For the, the immigrants, first paid immigrants arrived in this country with the sale of land in New Zealand to pay their fees over here. Therefore, What they arrived here was actually the clothes they had on and the knowledge, the laws to actually take over the control of this country and its people, including the land (coughs) legislation we're talking about today. What we're trying to do now is to find the solution to moving, not so much of the tribal issues, but to try and make the education of these young people of today that's in the universities to seek a way to unite our people. Whereas we the Māori people are at the lower level when we actually own and actually have the control of this country, if history is correct, it's, it's that our ancestors were here, we should be at the same level of control, monitor, the, the money level. We should be shareholders of every industry in this country.
1: Sana Murray of Ngāti Kuri passed away in 2011. She was 90 years old at the time of her death. She was one of six iwi claimant groups, Ngati Wai, Te Rarawa, Ngati Kahungunu, Ngati Porau, and Ngati Kuata, of the Y262 claim. The claim sought recognition and protection of cultural and heritage rights, including indigenous flora and fauna, mātauranga Māori, and traditional knowledge. In 1975, Bill Rowling was the country's 30th Prime Minister. He was Deputy Prime Minister, but stepped into the role after Norman Kirk died unexpectedly in 1974. The leader of the opposition was Robert Muldoon of the National Party. This next statement was made in August 1975.
7: In the past, we've seen laws passed which clearly discriminated against the Maori people. They ignored the clear expression of Maori concern and denied them in too many ways the right to determine their own destiny, particularly that destiny within the larger framework of New Zealand society. Reason and common sense were set aside and ignored. Land to the Maori is a perpetual link with family and kin, a link with the tribe with the region, and through the region, with our country as a whole. You will also know that we intend to return the confiscated Taupiri mountain to the Waikato and people. We know the great spiritual, historic, and emotional significance this land has for those people. And the final transactions for its return will be completed shortly.
5: A man who has expounded the concept of looking at cultural matters in the context of one's own tribal boundaries, Tuhuitanga, John
8: Rangihau. May I clarify this point about uh, land and what it means to Maori? Mm. Uh, Okay. you know, if you have a look at the creation myth of Maori, you know, Papa Tuaduku was Mother Earth. Right? And sky was the father. So that land had emotional overtones beyond that which made it a, nego- a negotiable piece of goods. It was part of them. It was their being, their whole being, this land. And so, and let me separate out that feeling with what has actually happened. So we have lost a lot of land, surely by all sorts of means and everything else. But let us not forget that we lost a lot of land also because we sold it. They fought for their pieces of land. Their land was to them sacrosanct. And they fought for it. The problem that we are affected with today is that the expectations are so and so, so and so, so and so. Right? The expectations for the Pakhas are that they do these sorts of things according to their laws and to what they believe. And they expect us to react to them favorably. Mm, and if we react to them unfavorably, suddenly they have no answer. Let me be very practical about my own situation in the Tuhuwe city. All right? Let me be practical and say this. You know, they're in the most inaccessible country in the North Island. You can say what you like about how they were driven there. But they were there, you know, that's fact, okay. The first time the land was confiscated because somebody came in, did a dastardly act, and land was confiscated as a result. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't up to them that this man who came in didn't come from Tuhoi, but they wanted the land anyway. So, they confiscated from Whakatoi to Tuhoi to, to the Teko. And, in fact, it was the Tuhoe people who actually apprehended the man and brought him to justice or whatever it was. One, Teko Hero, according to me. Rebel, according to other people. But he was thrown in there and suddenly we got caught up again in the turmoil. Of having to look after some people you know let's face it the last fire the last uh, rifle was fired in New Zealand in 1916 Mm -hmm. by Ruhr and his people Mm -hmm. but by the police who got a little panicky against Mm Ruhr and his kids who ran around 1916 that wasn't too far away you know so what does it mean in total terms for me it means this all right, we have lost this land for many reasons. We have a number of things that we are going now. At the moment, though, the ball is in my court because the government at the moment has said to us, well, what do you want? And we are holding it
1: up. Te o te to mean those with foresight, began the march with about 50 people in Tehapua. Now, on the way down to Wellington, they would stop at various marae. Hannah Jackson from a 1975 interview.
7: What is your biggest impression of the march that you took part in?
9: Well, the biggest impression was the feeling that overcame all of us of how the spirit of the ancestors seemed to be with us. And our spirits were very, very high. The uh, the groups broke up into three. Some went to Cape Reinga, some went to Spirits Bay. And we joined in the march just before they got to that point of meeting. And the group that came from Spirits Bay were held up because they hadn't anticipated how long the march would take. And someone was sent over to see how they were coming along. They were even offered a lift to get them, uh, bring them back over to us. And the beautiful thing was that they refused the lift. They said, if we are running behind, if we are behind time, we will run to catch up. And we had an old man in his seventies um, who was in that walk, and I think this is an indication of how we how we felt. Uh, as a member of Ngā Tamatoa, we were very honoured when Te Ropu Kite accepted the idea of commencing the sacred march on the September the fourteenth, which is the beginning of National Māori Language Week. We think the language and the land cannot be separated and we went up to Te to support the people in the march.
7: When you say you felt the spirits of the ancestors were with you, can you explain that for me a little better? Did you really feel a kind of physical presence?
9: I think the, the presence was, was amongst us all, the emotional feelings, the feeling that we could have ran all the way. The, the discomfort to our feet was not felt by myself. I was literally running, and lots of other people were running, the emotional, the... The happiness that I experienced was being experienced by all the other people around us. The little baby who was carried in the kit. The old lady, there were two old ladies who were walking along who refused to be put put in a car and, and taken to their destination. This is an indication of how we were marching with the spirits of our ancestors. And that's how I felt when we left the marches yesterday afternoon.
7: Well now here you are 24 hours later. How does the, your body feel now? Is it sort of protesting a little bit?
9: Well, I don't know whether it was the the medal of that Finna Cooper, Nana Cooper, gave to us of St. Christopher, combined with the spirits of our ancestors, but I did run for about two, two miles, just jogging along. My spirits were so high, and yet my feet, although they were very sore last night and I had a bath and put them up, um, I am suffering no discomfort at the moment.
7: What were the conditions like for the actual march yesterday? The
9: conditions were it was a beautiful fine day as Nana Cooper had predicted. We had a lovely day. I think this was seen from our people's point of view as a good sign. They had the church service in the morning and then from there they broke up into groups and the march commenced.
1: Cyril Chapman now runs Totoko FM, the iwi radio station in Mangamuka. Forty years ago, he held the po Whenua, a carved wooden po, to symbolise places of significance. At the start of the hikoi, right to the end, he explains to Paul Diamond what it was like to be involved in the march.
3: Um, I was only 20 years old. Uh, I was just like, uh, I say, the the hupe fellow from the Hokianga, um, (laughs) who um, hadn't hadn't, uh, had much experience. I had no big political view. Uh, But what it is, I, I, I was raised in a... A little place called Mangataipa, and the Mangataipa was known by the world as those people who who were very uh, staunch uh, to, uh, to Um I grew up with the stories from my crannies, uh, from my uncles and aunties who talked about um, lying on the road when they tried to uh, to take our, uh, put a road through our burial ground. Uh, my grandparents were jailed in the 50s for re-going back to our original papakainga, so uh, that was all part of, I suppose, a, a longer journey. And uh, I was living in Taipake Makota at the time. I met uh, Vivian as well as Betty Walk, and they were inspirational in me uh, becoming part of uh, the hikoi. I guess it was just that the, the fire in me that was there from many, many generations ago and it was just being expressed to me as a 20-year-old from the
10: from Hokianga. The
1: Vivian Hutchinson.
10: Greetings, everyone, and certainly friends who are in, in the audience here, you know um, it was a privilege to be working with Winner in this and um, you know, people ask me how they I get involved in the beginnings of the march, I just really, I was too, too young to know that I couldn't do it <laughs> and um, so you know, it was, there was a great deal of naivety in, in, involved in, in the whole thing it was a privilege to be the only Pākehā person involved in the organising um, committee but um, one of the things that Winner really impressed on us was that this uh, march was going to be an expression of dignity and uh, and it wasn't we weren't going to come down the country shouting at anyone and she made it very clear right, right from the very beginning there would, there would be no banners there would be no placards um, we were the placards um, we were walking over the, the land that this protest was trying to protect so therefore you know we were, we were the manner of that land was coming with us, and um, that needed to be treated with respect. So each day was was started with prayer. We had all the instructions. No one was allowed to go and visit the pub, um, you know, and uh, no smoking on the march. All this sort of all this sort of stuff was um, no part of the whole thing. No, no transistor radios. We just you had to concentrate. And um, and actually, it was, you know, for a, for a young Pakeha boy, it was like a initiation ritual into, a, into a quite a different New Th- sense of yourself as a New Zealander and I think that was true for so many of the people that were on the march itself.
1: David Williams.
10: Uh, so I think uh, for
1: care,
11: Matukite um, Aotearoa was a, a wake up call for all New Zealanders uh, and we took it as our responsibility in care to uh, make sure it was a wake up call for Pākehā. In 1973, the Kirk government had um, cancelled the Springbok tour of New Zealand, and at that time I was living in East Africa, and I know how joyful African people were that uh, New Zealand government stood up against racist South Africa. And CARE was mostly known for its anti-apartheid activities, but uh, when I came back home, for me it was really important that we picked up our responsibilities for issues in our own country. And so. Uh, you mentioned some of the people on on our committee, including helen clark and and so on, but the key ones on this for this respect were um, uh, Fred Ellis and Betty Walk, uh, because uh, it doesn 't look like it if you go to Auckland these days, but freeman 's Bay and Ponsonby was the Maori center of Auckland, and that 's where it all happened in terms of uh, a lot of the issues about housing for for people in in Auckland and Fred Ellis and Betty Walk were part of that, and then Atahui and Maori in, Māori in um, February, I think of the year. Um, care got to know about this uh, proposal for a march it was confirmed and in the next month in march and so you know we've got about here's one of the original um, badges support the maori land march it led to my connections with joe hawke who i work with a lot over the next few years um, but in particular uh, we were aiming to raise consciousness for Pagar about issues of racism within our own country <laughs>
1: As the hikoi gained traction, so did the media coverage. Not everyone supported the hikoi. This was written in the New Zealand Herald, dated 30 September 1975, from staff reporter Stephanie Gray.
10: Many of those who were not among the nigh-on 4,000 Aucklanders who joined the march through the city seemed bewildered. One man thought the march was stupid, others doubted that the walkers would have any success in Wellington and believed the march was a lot of hard work for nothing.
1: Arguably, the march was equally opposed as it was supported. According to that same newspaper article, the procession had visited 15 manai by the end of September. By then, the numbers had grown to about 200. Te ropu o te were greeted with cheers, Gifts of money, fruit and vegetables. One hotel allowed the group to stay in 18 of their units for free. Of course, Marae played an integral role in sustaining the group.
2: Vivian, I was curious to ask you, another thing that's really been a revelation to me is the way media worked at this time. And you were a journalist in Auckland. You were working for a little community newspaper, City News. Is that right? But that ended up being an important way of getting the message across. How interested was the rest of the media in the kaupapa of Matikiti
10: early on? Not really. I think um, people weren't uh, people were interested. Um, it, um, I think our paper stood out, and we we're only a small two-person newspaper in the middle of uh, Ponsonby. Um, we stood out because we were obviously advocating for it and and, um, and um, supporting it. And at that time, people came from all over Auckland to grab our paper to find out what was going on with the landmarks and, and the preparations. Uh, we, we just before the march, we started to break through with um, a major item in the listener, but that was, that was about all. Apart from that, um, I, I would say the commitment of the New Zealand Herald to send a photographer up on that first day, and that, that iconic photo that, you, that everyone knows of um, Hwina and her uh, granddaughter, Irene, that was worth more than a thousand words to, to the movement. And also, Stephanie Gray um, was uh, the reporter there, and every day she filed in a, um, a story about where the march was going. And, of course, Stephanie was able to sit there in the evenings and listen to the elders talking about their, their struggles um, and realising that these weren't historical struggles. These were, these were stuff happening there and then. It was the Town and Country Planning Act there and then. It was the, it was the Rating Act there and then. It was, it was the um, Public Works Act there and then.
2: It seems to me part of the cleverness of the march was that you were reaching people through things like the New Zealand Herald and television were interested and, and, and national radio then as well, but when you were staying at these marae up and down the country, you weren't just, that wasn't just manakitanga that was a chance then to it or wānanga with them, and there was a lot of opposition, wasn't there initially, from Māori
10: to the idea of the march? Yes, there was. The, um, you know, Kuna herself faced um, opposition as she came to different places. Um, you know, kinda of had a long history, she had a few skeletons in the closet, and people were delighted in the chance to be able to take her on about some of these um, things. But she she um, she rose to the occasion, and I, I have to say, it took a lot of courage. Those evening things, as, as Cyril was saying, you know, we 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 put a lot of emphasis on the walking that took place during the day, and you know, all of us did at least twenty miles a day. And um, but what. Uh, A huge part of the march was those evening
1: meetings. And some Māori who were not in the march but were the ringawera or the cooks to sustain Te Ropu o Te Matakite were very media shy, as you can hear in this next piece from 1975.
12: Right now at Porirua, there's an ecumenical church service taking place for the Matakite marches, and after that, they can look forward to a hangi. Yesterday, I took a walk to the Te Rapraha Park and I had a talk to the potato peelers and the honey builders there. I asked one of the workers how long they'd been preparing food for the marchers. What have you been doing? Peeling potatoes?
13: Yeah.
3: And other vegetables?
12: Have you been doing any diving?
3: Yes, we did that earlier.
12: Uh-huh.
3: Uh huh. Not this week, though.
12: Where are you keeping the stuff that you dived for, then?
3: Well, they've been
8: allocated to at different points.
12: Who organized this? Has it been organized, or have you just sort of pulled in?
3: Oh, I wouldn't say it's organized. We've all just fitted in like how we always fit in, as a Maori people. It's just our nature.
12: Do you reckon you'd have enough food?
3: More than sufficient.
12: How do you know? Because you don't know exactly how many people there'll be, do you?
6: Oh,
3: but we just know. I think we've got everything all. I think we've got enough.
12: You just know? What sort of food have you got? Kai. Kai. Puhang? Have, have people been out getting yes. Puhang? all Maori food. All Maori food. Uh-huh. And how many hangis have you got altogether? Twenty all and all around here or in different
11: oh, places? Ten here. Uh, uh, There's two lots of five. And uh, two different marais.
1: The march was now on the home stretch. They visited 25 marae and marched for over 1,000 kilometres. They stayed at Takapu Wahia Marae in Porirua. This from 1975.
13: Tom Poata, uh, from Wellington, Pōneki. Yeah. Tokumaru Bay, after on the east coast. How long have you lived in Wellington, Tom? Oh, about off and on, about 11 years. I've lived in, uh, in various places, Southland, but uh, for the last period I've lived continuously, I suppose, 10 years in Wellington. What made you go up to Taupo to march the whole way down to Porneke? Well, it's simple, really, because of the injustices uh, related to the land issues. And uh, I believe that Te Ropua Matakete have helped to organize the united uh, basis of Maoris, bringing Maoris together, drawing them together on the basis of these injustices, and they're trying in their own way to right them. I think that um, the past periods, over 130 years of submissions have done no good. They've fallen on deaf ears. Have you any guarantee, have you any assurance that it's not going to fall on deaf ears this time? I don't think uh, anyone can guarantee anything, but I certainly hope that the numbers of people uh, participating in the march will make the government realise that we mean business and that people really feel for these uh, injustices, and uh, if they don't take any notice of the submissions, as they haven't done in the past. I hope that they'll take notice of people, real-life people, who are prepared to go out of their way, lose money and march. How much support does the memorial that you're going to present to Parliament have? Well, it's got the support of every uh, major chief of the Marais who have visited. When I say uh, major chief, the descendants of those chiefs who signed the Treaty of Waitangi Uh, direct line descendants and many, many people of importance. It's only these people that are allowed to sign the memorial because that throws much significance onto the actual memorial. Anyone is entitled or allowed to sign the petitions that are going around, but the memorial is reserved to those on a bloodline and with much mana in relation to Maori ideas of mana, ideals and that. And these people are are asking, are being asked to sign, and they are signing.
2: One other thing associated with the march is this Memorial of Right, which I carried in. This is actually a copy of the Memorial of Right that was presented to Bill Rowling, the then Prime Minister. This is a copy that's been um, graciously loaned to us by the National President of the Māori Women's Welfare League. This is their copy, which has actually got a wonderful inscription by Fina on the bottom. And Joseph Cooper, Finna's his son, was to be with us today, but he's unwell, so couldn't travel, but we were keen for this to be here to acknowledge his presence. Cyril, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how the Memorial of Right came to be created, and what, Joe's,
3: what was Joseph's role in, in creating that? We need to take something into Parliament that represented the, the voice of the people. Each time we got to a marae, there'd be huiunga, and the, the kaumata would uh, whiri whiri kōra, they'd uh, talk throughout the night. And at the end of the hui, um, they would be asked to get up and sign the memorial right. And that was really, I suppose, as a, a total war. At that time, there were, you know, throughout the butu, there were lots of uh, uh, Māori had you know, we we'd experienced many years of alienation of Māori land. So there was an, op- there was an opportunity uh, for the rangatira uh, from each area to actually side memorial right uh, to actually, you know, um, present to Parliament um, that carried the clip of
2: Matakiti. There's quite a lot of mystique, I think, associated with it. I think reading the, the clippings in your collection, Vivian, you know, I think Dame Fenner and others, I mean, were very clever. There was a real sense of theatre about this document. No one was allowed to see it, to photograph it. It was brought out from its little box each night when you were staying at the different marae. Only the chiefs of the marae were allowed, allowed to sign it, and it wasn't actually sort of revealed to the public. It was presented to Bill Rowling. The original is held by Parliament and at the moment it's on display at Te Papa in the Slice of Heaven exhibition, the 20th century exhibition, so you can see it. We've got the petition, um, which is at archives, but if you want to see the Memorial of Right, you have to go to Te Papa. A
1: march of this scale forged of trail for the ensuing Māori marches and protests over the past four decades. Most notably, since this march was the 2004 foreshore and seabed hikoi that also began in the far north. So, what was the physical and mental challenges? Again, from 1975, here's Tom
13: Puata. Well, of the lost money, of course, we all have uh, by not being employed our families have helped us out to some extent Uh, and i think the sacrifice of blisters is normal and everything like that and having to sleep outside but the it's been a major gain from my point of view in that uh, we've found a a closeness with each other and a a bond has developed between us all and uh, i think this is Uh, overruled any sacrifices that we might have made. I I broke down on the way up there, for instance, on a truck I was to take up, and I had to borrow a car to make them to Hapua march in time for its uh, initial leaving. The car I had uh, got a puncture at midnight in Waikato and we had to change it, and we couldn't find a spare, so we filled it with grass. We stuffed grass into the tire and we uh, spent about three hours plucking grass from the side of the road. We pushed that all around, and we put the tire back on and drove on, but we made to Harpur. We made it for the service in the morning and we made it in time to turn around and walk back. Those sorts of things, that was just one incident. But there's several incidents where people struggled to get to, to Hapua to walk back before they even started the march. But Tom, there's still a friendly rivalry between say the Ngāti Tor and the Ngāti Poirō, isn't there? I think there is a friendly rivalry with the basis uh, with the emphasis on the friendly and it's not as pronounced now, but I think that there's always been some chauvinistic attitude between uh, Maori tribes but uh, this group itself mata is made up of many many tribes in fact we've uh, developed on the way uh, an attitude towards Uh, people from the particular marais we were going on to that a representative from that particular marae would carry the po whenua and have found a representative from every marae in every case. How relevant then is the support that the the Pākehā will give to Roko Matakiti? Well it's very very important to us that we get Pākehā support. We've had Pākehā support on the march, we've had Pākehā support uh, behind the scenes. But I don't think we'll get anywhere without Pākehā's support. You see, the whole idea of us marching to Parliament is to win Pākehā's support of the parliamentarians because they hold the power. Our four Māori Maori members have been petitioning in their own way, have been raising these, isu- these issues, including the Minister of Māori Affairs, Matt Rata. He's been raising certain issues. But again, they've been falling on the majority ears who happen to be Pākehā. Well, we want those deaf ears to listen to us to hear us and to uh, take action.
1: 40 years on, what does Māori protest look like today? And what is in store for the next generation? We join the panel. Once again, the guest speakers are Cyril Chapman, Vivian Hutchinson and David Williams, facilitated by Paul Diamond.
2: We have kōhunga we have Kura kaupapa Māori, we have all these things. Where are things at now in terms of the issues that, that got people out to march? 20 miles a day
3: and spend 30 days marching to Wellington. Uh, well, I think there's been uh, there's been so much dis- disconnection uh, between the federal and the people, and uh, the settlement process has really talked more about Putia rather than uh, taking our people home with the, the corporate models of it of the of the process. I personally I've got strong views about that process that it does hasn't done. Justice—it's actually the creation of uh, bigger treaty breaches, um, uh, particularly with the uh, the notion of full and final settlements that we can never go back—and so that's a real concern. But I mean, the the big issues, of course, that we all know about are the um, uh, Trans-Pacific Agreement. Uh, Those are going to have huge ramifications not only on the sovereignty of our Maori nations, but also the sovereignty of Aotearoa in general. So there's a whole of new issues that. Uh, will have to be sorted out by a new generation of people. Our mokopuna, who, um, you know, we were the 20-year-olds back in 75, so there's a whole new generation of our mokopuna have come through. And those issues, I think, are a lot more, are way more complex than the issues of that time. How do you think the 20-year-olds today are
2: going to address things? Do you think they'll be heading the streets or they might be doing... Well, no, like- I think
3: they've got different ways to do it now. I mean, it's... Um, uh, I see people with the cell phones, uh, the, the Facebook. Um, that seems to be the main communication of the new generation. So, uh, and and you if you go on the Facebook and on the new social media, that's where they're posting a lot of their stuff up. And so there's a lot of uh, interaction, not only locally, not only nationally, but globally. So that's a whole new, whole new thing we're dealing with. But yeah, um, you know, I think we're we're facing some huge challenges basic challenges of having enough kai for our kids. I mean, those are things that we can all relate to. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a lot of work to do.
2: Gilda. Vivian, when we spoke about what, we, what to talk about here, you said you didn't want it to be just nostalgia and just talking about the march, you, and you wanted to look at where we're at now. What you, so I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think are the
10: lessons of the march? How does the march speak, speak to us now, 40 years on? I, just, I've just—I've been fascinated with the level of interest in the in the whole match um, event around this time. I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm more interested in talking about what I'm what I'm doing now what I want to do um, next. My own personal view is that the settlement process has been a missed opportunity in terms of Akiha people getting to do their own cultural work. We seem to have um, created this device, this almost glove puppet we call the, the Crown. Uh, we all voted for it, but, uh, but somehow it's between Murray and the Crown, and they get to do their cultural work with each other. We end up being spectators on the side and consumers of the final thing, and it, and it becomes, a, becomes more about deal-making. I just think um, we've still yet... our people have still yet to do our own hikoi in this regard, to do the cultural work of reconciliation, the, the cultural work of um, peacemaking. And that's done by sharing the stories, um, sitting with the the pain of what has taken place together with people, not not subcontract it out to politicians called the crown. Um, we, you know, I would have liked that every time there was a um, settlement somewhere, there was a book where Pakeha could come up and also sign that book, and um, we can say yes, we're sorry for what is, what has taken place, and uh, this this settlement is not in any way. Um, you know, it's, it's less than 1% in many cases of the, of the value of what's going on, so it's symbolic in that regard, but we didn't even get to do the, the smallest piece of our own cultural work that needed to happen in terms of reconciliation.
1: When Te Ropu o Te entered into Wellington, traffic came to a standstill, as mentioned before they stayed at Purirua. They ended the march on the steps of Parliament on the 13th of October. Tūkino a hōtaka kite ropu o te mata kite mē o kaitai faʻanau. Tōi tūtī venua fa tu ngaro ngaro te tangata. Poet hone tufare
8: Papa, tu anuku. Earth mother, we are caressing, stroking the spine of the land. We are massaging the racked, ricked back of the land with our sore but ever-loving feet. Squirming, she rolls over with delight. Hell, she loves it. Hell, we love her.